Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. And the word of the Lord reads this way. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, Father, may it speak boldly into our souls. May we receive it with humility, and may we go walk in confidence. Father, for your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name, amen. And well, good morning. Hopefully the, the turkey has worn off, uh, and you're all nice and awake this morning. At least it's dry in here as, as it continues to get wet outside. As we talk about, as we continue through the book of Hebrews here, this morning I, I want to consider the idea of a uh, of a high calling. What is our high calling? What has been given to us as a high calling? Francis Schaeffer, if you're not familiar with Francis Schaeffer, you should be. You should read everything that he has written. He says this, Francis Schaeffer once defined the basic aspiration or goals of people today, including evangelical Christians, as simply this, material affluence, and enough personal peace to enjoy it. The basic aspiration of mankind, including Christians in our culture, as the acquiring of material or a material affluence and enough personal peace to enjoy it. Let that sink in for just a moment. He basically said, having things... And having enough peace to somehow, to some measure, enjoy those things. I think you see that in our culture broadly. You always two things happening in our culture. Just, just watch the conversations being happened broadly. You see two things happening. You see the acquiring of things, whether that's materials, relationships, cultural status, ideologies, whatever it is. It could be material, immaterial. You see them acquiring that, and then you see justification in order to feel good about it. Those are the, the conversation always has two parts to it. Acquiring, and then the justification. What, what is that? It's just, it's me trying to defend what I'm saying so that I can feel good about what I'm acquiring. For us, unfortunately, I think it's not a whole lot different I think Francis Schaeffer is speaking into our lives as well, whether it's having a car, a particular car, having a home, a particular home, or maybe less tangible things like relationships or particular relationships or relational status or having holiday dinners that look a particular way, and then having some sort of, for ourselves, having some sort of emotional experience with that thing that is peaceful enough 
so that you can enjoy, again, the things which you've acquired. I think we'd be wise to think through that this week. What, are the, what am I after? What is my high calling? What am I pursuing? And, and I'll just enter into this a little further by saying what a pathetic way to live life. And yet many of us, all of us to some measure, settle into this kind of routine. Let me acquire A, and then let me somehow garner up enough peace to enjoy A. I really want you to consider, even in this moment, if that's the calling that you've given yourself to. Or at what points this past week is that the calling that you gave yourself to? For many of us, this is probably not the lifestyle that is ours all the time. But it could be in the mid-morning that you settle into this calling and now you live out the rest of the day this way. Just what can I acquire and how can I get my mind and my heart to, how can I just kind of conjure up enough peace to enjoy it? What do you live as though it's your highest calling? Listen, these things that even Francis Schaeffer is talking about, this material affluence, these things of earth are not necessarily evil, although some and many things are. They don't have to be in conflict with our higher calling, but they must flow through and subsequent to that highest calling. So let's just ponder those things as we work through chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. The first thing I want you to see is God's sovereign planning. God's sovereign planning from verse 10. If you don't have your Bibles open, I would encourage you to. I'm just going to walk right through these verses. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. Just those two phrases for the moment. First of all, it was fitting. What was fitting? What was fitting was that his son would suffer. His son would suffer. Here's what he means by that. It made sense. It was consistent. It was consistent. But consistent with what? Listen, we most oftentimes, for ourselves personally, just want life to be consistent with how we feel. I feel this way, and I want life to be consistent with that. But this isn't just consistent. What is it uh, with, with the way God feels? It's consistent with God's character. So it's fitting, meaning it was consistent. What was happening, the suffering of his son, was consistent. It was congruent with God's character, with his grace, his mercy, his justice, his love, his wisdom, all of it. It was fitting. It, was, it made sense. It was consistent. It was God's sovereign plan, which flows from God's character. But again, consistent to do what? What made sense? What was fitting? It was fitting with God's character for his son to earn our salvation through suffering. Do you see that? It was fitting to God to ordain that his son would go suffer for the good of another. It was congruent with God's character and his plan 
to plan out the suffering son, our Savior. I have two quick points of application here, right off the bat. One, I think this kind of loving sacrifice is lost on us. It would not be fitting for many of us to send anything we love to die for the good of another. We don't recognize oftentimes when people around us are sacrificing things for the good of us, and we certainly struggle to lovingly sacrifice ourselves for the good of others. An example, husbands, do you lay down your life to do what is absolutely best for your family? Or maybe another spin on that, do you lead your family to sacrifice for the good of others? And how do you do that? So I think that, first of all, is, is lost on us, that kind of loving sacrifice. It's, it's, that's why we don't do that, because it's not consistent with our character. My second point of application is that God loves his children that much. God loves his children this much, that his love and the suffering of his son would fit together. Do you really believe that? As application here, do you really believe that? Dare I say, when the weight of your sin feels terribly impossible to carry, what you should remind yourself of is this. The suffering of Jesus for those sins was fitting to the God who sent him to die. It was congruent with the character of God The Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, the one of whom all things exist, has set his love upon his people. And the natural outworking of that love was to perfect his son through suffering to deal with the very sin that you are dealing with. Now now listen, I, I can't make that beautifully encouraging truth sink into your soul. You have to beg the Father for that to sink into your soul. I can tell you the truth, but you have to believe it. And you have to think upon it and ponder it. It was fitting for God to send his son to die for your sin. The second part of that phrase, he says, is for whom and by whom all things exist. This this little phrase in between two commas. Why does he put those, that little phrase in between these two commas? For whom all things exist. All things are by God and for God. We heard lots of this language as it relates to Christ in the first part of Hebrews. Someone said this. This expression, so this phrase in between the two commas here. This expression sets forth the high sovereignty of God in the most unqualified and absolute manner. All things, without exception, that is, all creatures, all events, everything. He does not qualify this. He does not say, for whom and by whom all things exist except A and B. But everything, it's unqualified. There is no caveat to this statement. 
Nothing happens without God's express permission. Nothing happens without God's decreeing it to happen. Nothing exists that doesn't find its existence from God. All of life happens in relation to God first and foremost. You should write down that phrase. All things happen in relation to God first and foremost. So here's the point. This phrase in the middle here. Here's the point. That this God, it was fitting for his son to die for you. Which God? The one by and for all things exist. That God is the God to whom it was congruent or consistent with to send his son to die for your sins. I think we miss the weightiness being applied in between the commas. The, the point is to bring, it's, it's kind of like an exclamation point. If you were writing in text or emoticons, there would be something here at the end that would say, yes, you should pay attention to this person. If you receive a text from me, it usually is an exclamation point. I like those when I text. This is the God. This is the one to whom it was fitting. Not just any old God, but the God. The one to whom all of existence orbits around. I mean, think about that. It was fitting to him that his son die for your sins. The one to whom and for whom all. The meaning is the fitting of that son, the sacrifice of that son, the redemption of his children. Those things orbit around this God. It was fitting to him. I think part of the reason why we miss this is because we tend to think that all things exist for us. Now you say, I, I know, like mentally I know, nothing, I, I know it all exists for God. I mean, there's, I, I doubt there is a soul in this room that, would, it, that thinks consciously and pursues life as though it exists for you. But let me ask you a question. Whenever you hear of something, anything, Whenever you think of something, anything, whenever something happens, anything, is your most immediate response to think, how does this exist from and for God? My guess is most of us think in that moment, how does this thing affect me? How does this thing make me feel? How does this thing fit with my plan? How does this uh, affect my thinking? How does this affect my day? Whenever we hear anything, whether you read it on Twitter or you hear it from a spouse or your kids are acting a certain way, or a certain, how many of us, the first thought is how does this thing exist from God and for God? Versus, oh, this is how I feel now. Or, oh, this is going to mess up my plans. Or, oh, man, I, I, I don't know if I can get, uh, you know, to the state that I want to be because this thing has happened. It's not that those thoughts are wrong. But the problem is, is what are you in that moment saying that thing is orbiting around? In that moment, you're saying that thing orbits around you. So it could be, again, just a conversation. Your kid walks up. And they're interrupting something that you want to do. They're messing up your plan. 
Now, they might need to be quiet and wait and be patient. But is that because that moment exists for the glory of God? Or is it because that moment is interrupting your plans? Now, that is interrupting your plans. I'm not denying that reality. But the issue is, is are you living as though these things, everything, your moment, your experience, the circumstance, your thinking, that thought that was said, whatever it is, exists for the glory of God? Or do you, <laughs> are you living as though it exists for you? When your spouse says something or does something, and you begin to ponder why you liked it or didn't like it, or you begin to think about how it's making you feel or how it's changing your plans, do you understand that your spouse and what your spouse just said or did doesn't ultimately exist for you? It doesn't exist from you, from him or her, and doesn't exist for you or for him or her ultimately. It was said or done, and it exists for God. The question should be, in that moment, was this thing honoring to God according to his word? Was this pleasing to God? What was God's purpose for what was said? And then, so once we check its orbit around God, then comes the questions of how does this affect me? How does this affect them? And listen, if it was honoring to God, then it should be enjoyed by you. But this rubs mankind wrong. Why? Because it makes us feel out of control or powerless. That's just part of the point here. Saying it was fitting. It was fitting to this God to whom all things orbit around. But what this does is it takes us out of the judgment seat where we can judge something as acceptable or not acceptable based on our pursuit of these things or our peacefulness in enjoying them. Remember, in this, in this first part of this passage, it was fitting, consistent, congruent for Christ to be our sacrifice congruent and consistent with this God to whom all things exist and from whom all things exist. Let's put a couple things together. All of the known and unknown universe exists for God, from God, and for God. That being, that God, it was fitting with his existence that your existence with him be redeemed by the life and death of his son. That's the weightiness here. The one to whom everything in your life, everything that happens, the one whom it orbits around, that person, not you. And the thing is, is if you and I spend, every time you and I spend thinking a situation orbits around us, is a moment we spend neglecting and missing the glory of its orbit around God. Think about that this week. But every moment that you see as, as orbiting around the God for whom it exists and from whom it exists is a moment that you get to enjoy and see the beauty of the Creator. That's the point here. If you miss that, the one to whom and from whom all things exist, 
you will miss the weightiness of the fittingness of this God who would send his son to die for you and for me. So don't ruin your moments of life by living just as though all things exist for you. Listen, this isn't something, this thing that's happening here isn't something that God did while gritting his teeth or having his arm twisted. I mean, some of you think that's what happened when he sent his son to die on the cross for you. You think, you sit back and you go, oh man, you know, God's up there just going, man, I wish I didn't have to send Jesus to die for her. Does any of you live that? I mean, you don't have to raise your hand. Any of you live that way? You live as though God, God's gritted his teeth when he sent Jesus to die? Some of you do. No, it was fitting to him. It made sense. It was congruent. He didn't have to, have to uh, be tw- his arm didn't have to be twisted. What was fitting? It was fitting to adopt his children. That's what was fitting. That and the sacrifice of his son, it was fitting to adopt his children. Let's read begin, beginning in verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, see the exclamation point, in bringing many sons to glory. Let's stop right there. Jesus is the elder brother. He's the elder brother. Now, try not to equate him, if you have an elder brother, don't try, just try not to equate him to your elder brother. He, he's the better older, elder brother, okay? He's the perfect elder brother. If you are the elder brother, he's the better elder brother. Okay? Does that make sense? Hopefully you've tracked with me there. He, this elder brother, is our source of inspiration. He's our source of help, our source of salvation. He's the perfect elder brother. Now, I think it's appropriate as we think about as he adopts his children, there is this phrase in our culture that, well, isn't everyone a child of God? That, that you, I've heard lots of Christians, I've even heard people in this church say, well, isn't everyone a child of God? Only in a general sense. Only in a general sense in which he is their creator. He is everyone's creator. So in that sense, if you think of a creation as all creation is a, is, is a child or is an outflowing of God, yes, but not in a fatherly sense. He is not everyone's father or... That, uh, let me back up. Not everyone is a child of God in the sense that he is their father in a familial way. Not in a communion sense or a familial sense. Listen, the most important blessing that you and I gain by having Jesus as our elder brother is entry into the family of God. Entry into the family of God. And bringing many sons to glory. To bring many sons to glory. By grace, we are adopted into the family to which Jesus belongs as the rightful son. Now, I think there's an important distinction. We are not his brothers and sisters because we are children of God. 
Rather, we are children of God because we are his brothers and sisters. Ephesians 1.5 says, God predestined us for adoption through Christ Jesus. We enter into the family through Christ and through Christ alone. This fitting, suffering, perfected sacrifice, it's through him that we gain entry into the family. We're not made his brothers because we're made first a part of the family. It's through the brother. It's through the elder brother. It's through his inheritance that the inheritance becomes ours. We're not just given another piece of the pie over here apart from Jesus. We gain entrance into the family through our elder brother who has inherited all things. He's, he, see, here is the order. We are adopted by God through Christ. Then our spiritual DNA is infused into us by the pouring of the Holy Spirit into our hearts. And when that happens, now we are real, true members of God's family. You're a child through your elder brother, Jesus, and through him alone. He says in here that the, the sanctified and the sanctifier all have one source. What's he mean? That God has created, here's what he means, God has created a new family, a new and redeemed people through the second Adam, the resurrected Jesus Christ. That God is the one who has created this, that has sourced this, if you will. He's done this through his son. Again, I have a couple points of application for us. Well, you know, on here I say I have two points. I actually have four, four points of application. The first one is this. You should think of yourself as a family member most. You should think of yourself as a family member most. In these terms, most. In opposition to what? I'm a sinner, as though the story stops there. You're a sinner who by faith, through, by grace through faith, through the elder brother, have been made a family member. The story doesn't stop there. You should think more of yourself as a sinner adopted into the family with new DNA. You should not think of yourself first and foremost as white, black, old, young, a control idol, a power idol, or your Enneagram number, God forbid. Predominantly, you should think of yourself as a member of God's family. I struggle with this sin, I struggle with this, but, but, but I am a child of God. Not as an individual most. Yes, you are an individual. But the extent to which our culture worships individualism and its adoption into the church is rather sinful. You are a member of a family. And a family to which you are called. To which you've been redeemed unto. This idea of family member, I would encourage you that it also, that it gets worked out practically in the church. It's where you 
live out what it means to be a family member, to be a son through the elder son, to be a daughter through the elder son. Second thought of application, you must share the characteristics of the family. You must share the characteristics of the family. You have shared characteristics in the family of God. You get new DNA, which means your uh, affections, your, your attitudes and such change. It's a brotherhood and sisterhood of those, don't miss this in the passage, those destined for glory. And that glory has a particular definition. It's defined in a way that's congruent with God's character. It's a brotherhood, a sisterhood, a family destined for glory. All of the glory and beauty that was lost when the first Adam fell is now regained through Christ and is being brought to perfection in us. You have shared characteristics with the family. One commentator said this, our attitudes, aspirations, our motives, and our actions should not be derived from those other people, namely the rebels deserving of wrath, but from our new association in the resurrected family of God into which we are born again in Christ. There are certain characteristics of that family. You know what the defining trait of that family is? You know, in our culture right now, we, want to, we would probably answer that as love. That's the defining characteristic. It's love. The defining characteristic is not, it's holiness. Love flows out of holiness. There is a holy way to love. And in fact, I would argue that only true love is holy love. Now, I don't mean... Teeth-gritted, defeated, bootstrap legalism that we might call holiness. What I mean is someone who delights in the Lord and His ways and therefore loves pursuing righteousness out of a love for God. Christians are to be about the business of becoming holy and making all things around them holy. Ephesians 1 verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We were reborn in Christ as his fellow brothers and sisters for the glory that is his in the heavenly realms and the holiness that distinguishes God and his children. We're redeemed for that. That is what the Christian life is about, growth in holiness. We, we, we take that and we go, uh, growth and in, in fitting into a whole bunch of standards or rules or whatever. No, we're talking about growth in holiness is a growth in becoming like our elder brother, who is the exact imprint, the exact image of his father, the one with the character whom it, to whom it was fitting to send his son to die for you. That is what the Christian life is about. This involves the progressive removal of the old man leaving sin behind us while we're putting on the new man, which is our elder brother. Third point of application, you are more related to the family of God than even your blood 
relatives. You're related to other brothers and sisters in Christ more than these others. Think beyond just blood relatives here. These people that, that I'm saying that you are destined for glory with, for eternal relationship with, you're not destined for eternal relationship with anybody else other than your brothers and sisters through the eldest son, Jesus. That's who you're destined for eternal glory and shared familial relationship with. Those people, those people are the ones who are pursuing holiness. Like that's the family defining characteristic. Those people are defining, are are pursuing holiness. So I want you to think about who you would consider your closest friends. Is that the defining characteristic of those people? That they are pursuing holiness as a part of the family of God. If that doesn't define your closest friends, then what does that say about you? If your closest friends are not those who share the family characteristics, then what does that say about you? If you feel closer, let me help you with that. If you feel closer to those people with shared affinities, whatever it is, other than the pursuit of the holiness of God, then either A, you are not really a part of the family of God yourself, or B, you really don't care about the holiness of God. I hear this phrase sometimes. I just, like, if we live out, let me, let me back up a second. If we are to live this out, shared characteristics, we're going to live that out most practically in the church family. And I hear this phrase. Well, I just don't feel close to these people in this church family. Let me be really frank with you. That's because they share the family trait of pursuing holiness, and you probably don't. Or at best, you don't value that family trait like you should. If your soul, hear me clearly, if your soul found its delight in pursuing holiness through the good news of Jesus, then you would delight deeply in others whose lives do the same. That joy that, that, that you see in their pursuit of holiness, you would be drawn to that. So if you're not drawn to that, you've got to step back and ask the question, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? You should be drawn by, to that. 
But we think of superficial things that make us close. We're the same age. We enjoy the same things, etc., etc. But those of you in this church family that know the closeness of family, you know that it's born out of the family trait of holiness, the pursuit of holiness. And you know the delight that I speak of. Fourth point of application. What is my place? Your place is to be a sibling. Your place in this place is to be a sibling. You say, and I hear this again frequently, well, I just don't know how I fit in. It's really tempting for us to think like the world in this moment, that these things exist from me and for me. Let me tell you, here's how you fit in. Every single one of you, if you're a follower of Jesus, here's how you fit in. Go be a Christian brother or a Christian sister to another Christian brother or a Christian sister. Go be a sibling. Go be a sibling. Go be a Christian brother. You do it. Don't, don't sit around and wait to be served. Jesus already served you. He served your redemption. Now go be a, go be a sibling. Go be, a good, go be the best Christian brother you can be to the Christian brothers around you and the Christian sisters around you. Go be the best Christian sister you can be. Defined by the word, not by the world or the culture or even those around you, but by the word. That's how you fit in. And once you've got good at that, keep doing it. Listen, you get to be a sibling to another soul redeemed by grace, and you get to enjoy God through that. I, don't know, I think you understand, that's a privilege. It's a privilege to be a Christian brother to another Christian brother. That's a privilege. That cost God his son for you to be. It's a privilege. Next, we were adopted, not the next application point, next main point here. We were adopted through his son. So for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. This is a phenomenal phrase. First of all, Jesus is the forerunner. So it says the founder. You can think of words like forerunner, pioneer. One commentator talked about like the Lewis and Clark. Uh, I did a wax museum where I dressed up as those guys. I couldn't, can't tell you, uh, um, you know, much of what I learned other than the fact that they were pioneers and they traversed the wilderness set before them. Uh, this was in like third grade for the record. I mean, my memory is bad, but third grade is a long time ago. Uh, it's longer for some of you, I know. Um, that when we think about founder, like forerunner, or we think about this, he was the founder of their salvation. I think we tend to think in, in like, okay, he started a business or he started something. But I think we, we might miss the nuance. I want you to catch the, the nuance here, is that that founder charted the course and plowed the way through 
to get it started. So it's not just, oh, he started something. Oh, he began a new race. No, he plowed through. Like, you need to pick up that nuance. He actually made the path. That's why I think forerunner is the better phrase than the ESV here. He's the forerunner. He paved the way. It's someone who forges a new path or conquers the next acre of land, the next half mile. He's the one that did that. Now next, forerunners require runners. For him to be a forerunner, it requires runners, which I think is another helpful thing. Russ brought this out last week. I think it's another why, why forerunner is a better word for this. Because founder could just mean he started something and it exists with a whole bunch of things. But he's, a, he's the forerunner. Like, there means there's got to be people who came after him, otherwise he's just a runner. Someone runs after him. Who's that? It's us. It's his children. Now, here's the question. What did he run through first? Here's what he ran through first. The separation between us and God. That's what he ran. If I, I mean, I'm going to explain what I mean by that. But at its base level, that's what it means. He ran first through that which separates us and God. Genesis 3, 23 through 24, gives us just a taste of this, at least at its origin, this separation. Therefore the Lord God sent him, meaning Adam, out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. When man fell... There went up this very real barrier between man and God. A barrier to separate man's sinfulness and God's holiness. Now, as the Old Testament works itself out, as God works the Old Testament out, I should say, the garden, the tabernacle, the temple, they all represent some very similar themes. A, these places represent man's communion with God. They represent the presence of God, the place of God, man's communion with God. Again, the garden, the tabernacle, and eventually the temple. But now this communion and these things as well represent separation between man and God's place, God's presence. This communion, now there's a barrier between the two. The garden is blocked by angels and a flaming sword. The tabernacle and temple by angels and a curtain. If you know your Old Testament stories in the temple and the tabernacle, at the center of the tabernacle, the temple, was eventually the Ark of the Covenant. It was a box that had the law in it. The law. Why is the law important? The law represents the holiness of God. It represents the character of God. And then you know, if you know the, the, the structure of the Ark of the Covenant, there's, there's angels looking down over top from above down at the law. Well, what's, what does God do? Even in that picture right there, he provides something. He provides what's called the mercy seat. That's the lid of the Ark. And what was to happen by the high priest? On that lid, it was to spill the blood of another that would cover the lid 
Why? So that when the angels would look down, when representing God, looking down on his holy law, that he would see it through the mercy seat, the blood, and he would forgo his wrath on God's people. Why? Because the wrath was poured out on the blood of the sacrificed one. So this, these angels looking down on this mercy seat. But that ark was located, though, at the center of these places. Tabernacle, the temple, God's presence. Why? Because this was a visual representation to God's people that there's a barrier between us. That I'm amongst you, but there's sin that has to be dealt with between us. That barrier, the flaming sword, the cherubims, the temple curtain, that's what Jesus ran through. That's where the forerunner went. That's the next half mile that was conquered. His blood covered the mercy seat once and for all. We know in the New Testament that the veil was torn in two. Why? Because the forerunner ran through it. Because the barrier between man and God was torn down. Now, how did he run through it first? Listen, the only person who could run through it was a person holy and acceptable to run through it. Jesus, we know, was blameless. He was perfectly holy. He was divine, but also a man. So he could run through it without being destroyed. He could walk into the presence of the holiness of God without being destroyed by it. Now, but the author here, though, says something, an interesting phrase. Uh, hopefully made most of our ears go, huh, what? What's that? Where he says he was made perfect through suffering. What does that mean? I think this phrase would be helpful for you to understand this. Not in character, but in office. He was made perfect, not in character, but in office, in his function. His office of high priest, redeemer, was being perfectly executed up until this point but that office was perfectly finished at the cross. What he was sent to do was perfectly finished at the moment where the veil is torn, at the moment where the barrier is broken, at the moment where the pathway has been cleared, at the moment, the elder brother secured the direction and the path for us to walk. That's how he ran through first. That's the beauty of this phrase. Is Jesus saying, uh, uh, the author of Hebrews is telling us that, that his office is finished. That that's done. He perfected it. Not that he was lacking or he was uh, in a sinful sense. And then what does the resurrection show us? God is saying Christ's office of high priest is perfected. It's satisfactory. It's done. It's finished. Listen, from this point on, 
one of the biggest themes in Hebrews will be immovable faith because Jesus is the final high priest. This is where that theme begins. You're going to hear a lot about the office of high priest and Melchizedek and so on and so forth. It begins here. Because he's perfected this office. He did what those other high priests couldn't do. He could walk right up to the throne of God. Such a beautiful picture. His all-conquering life paved the way. It paved the way for you and I into God's presence. Back into communion with God. Full acceptance, full justification from our sin, price paid in full. Your trial, your trial, if you're a believer, is no longer happening in the courtroom. The only trial going on is where the pagans and evil rulers are still trying to argue their case. Our case is done, and their case is really done too. They just think it isn't. But if you're a follower of God, you've been stamped already with the title of son or daughter of the king. Why don't we live this way? Why don't, like, why don't we live this way as though that path has been forged and that I, a man, a sinful man, gets to commune with God, the one to whom and from whom all things exist, the one to whom it was fitting to send his son to die for me, to forge that path, to be the forerunner. Could it be that we consider our highest calling to simply get stuff and have inner peace about enjoying that stuff? And that we don't consider the high calling of running after the forerunner. We don't consider that our highest calling to run after the forerunner Our highest calling is to run after the forerunner. Not to be saved, but because we are saved. Not to be saved, but because we are saved. That's my last point, is that our highest calling is to run after the forerunner. Not to chase him as in the sense that like a legalist does, where they're just trying to earn their righteousness. But as someone who knows the path has already been cleared, all I need to do is with effort, certainly, but by faith, walk it. To run after him. Why do you think Paul says, I beat my flesh, I discipline my flesh to, to run the race? There's two things. Like, yes, there's going to be work. Paul understands that that's going to be hard. But what does Paul also know? Is that the path has already been cleared. The path has already been cleared. How do we know? In part, the path is not the path has already been cleared. He says this here that Christ, our elder brother, isn't ashamed of us. Read that starting in verse, second part of verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one, have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. The pronoun here is referring to Jesus. For Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. 
He's not ashamed to call us brothers. Now, why would, why would there be a cause for shame? Like why, why would there be the potential of being ashamed? Because humanity that he attached himself to when he came in the flesh was rebellious and deserving God's wrath. That's something to be ashamed of. That's why. That's why. Because there is people, all of us, that are worthy of being ashamed of. But listen to this. Many of us, many of us Christians, truly following Jesus, live in the fear or the hiding and the crippling reality of shame. But if you, listen, two distinctions here. If you are not truly redeemed and you live in the shame of that, that's a good place for you to be. I know that's a harsh thing to say, at least to, to the flesh. That's a good place. For, why? Because it should show you the depth of the despair of your situation. But if you've heard anything today, you should see that there's a pathway out of that shame. For those of you who are truly redeemed, that's not a good place for you to be, living in crippling shame. Why? Because Jesus isn't ashamed of you, so why are you? Why are you? Why are you still muddling in that shame? Jesus isn't ashamed of you. He took it all. Now, why? I'm getting ahead of myself here. Why isn't he ashamed of us? Those who are his brothers and sisters. But listen, that means he is ashamed of the others. But those who are his brothers and sisters, why is he not ashamed of us? It's tempting to think, well, he loves me and, you know, and he just has positive thoughts for me and that's why he isn't ashamed of me. You see, in our culture... In our world right now, we've been taught that you deal with shame by just being loved. If you love me, you won't make me feel shame. True love is helping someone deal with the shame. Jesus isn't ashamed of us because he just loves us. But because he loves us, he dealt with our shame. He took care of the shame. He doesn't ignore the shame. He doesn't just turn a blind eye to the shame. But he deals with the shame. God loved us. And so he dealt with our shame. How? Jesus' salvation, where he earns our justification, the reason for which we should be ashamed. He deals with that sin. That we are marked as justified. And now we are being sanctified, made practically holy. That's why. That's why he isn't ashamed of us. It has nothing to do with you or me. It ultimately has everything to do with God and his forerunner. So if you're a Christian and you are struggling with shame, you should go back and study this. He dealt with that shame. If you're not a Christian, you should go back to this passage and deal with it. Because he took your shame. If you place your faith in his glorious work for you. 
Last question. What's it look like to run after the forerunner? What's it look to then run after the forerunner? If that is our highest calling, what's it look to run after the forerunner? Read on with me. They're getting into verse 12 and 13. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Listen, there are two reasons of which, or for which God, or why Christ is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. The one is we've been justified. The second is we're being sanctified. This portion, this latter portion here, gets into the sanctified part of it, the being made holy part of it, okay? So two thoughts here. First is, how do we run after the forerunner? A, you run after him. Christ died to make worshipers. Christ died to make worshipers. You'll have to go back this week, because I don't have time, but you have to go back this week and read Psalm 22, the first part, or rather verse 12, he is quoting from Psalm 22. If you read Psalm 22, you will see a passage clearly about Jesus and clearly about a people worshiping this Christ. I want to point out to you that holy living is downstream of right worship. Holy living is downstream of holy affections, of holy worship. Holy living children. If you look at unholy living, you can look upstream and see faulty worship. Listen, as we stand, we stand as righteous before God, justified. That has an effect on people. It makes right worship. Why? Very practically, who wouldn't worship a God who took away all of their sin and shame? This, I'm serious, ask that question. Who would not worship a God who took away all of their sin and shame? Only an arrogant fool. So when you and I slip in to unholy living, it's downstream of faulty worship. And what are we doing in that moment? It is arrogance and foolishness for us to not be responding to God's gracious gift of his son. Right? Everything we just talked about in the first 90% of the sermon today. To not live in response to that in a way that brings about holy living. Psalm 22 helps us see that Christ died to make worshipers. And we know that right worship comes from Right faith, meaning belief in the right things. Number two, run after him. Christ died to make witnesses. These forerunners, or the forerunner, whom the runners are following, are witnesses. Again, go read Isaiah 8, particularly verse 17 through 18, later this week. We, those who have been redeemed, are children of God, given to Jesus Christ, called to testify among the generation to which we are present. We're to testify the reality of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. 
We're to testify to the reality of the forerunner. That's what it means to run after the forerunner. We give witness by our proclamation of the gospel, and not just the components of the gospel uh, as facts or ideas, but how the gospel affects our lives and everything around us. We consider the phrase, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's in response to the forerunner not being ashamed of us. We are witnesses, or we witness by our holy lives, because only a gracious God would take rebels, redeem them by the blood and may of his son, and make them his sons and his daughters, and set them apart as his witnesses. Listen, your greatest and highest calling is not to acquire any of those things that you probably typically chase after and to have some measure of peace about those things. Your greatest and highest calling is to run after the forerunner who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. I would encourage you, go run. Go run. The path has already been cleared The end has already been secured. Go run. Let's pray. Father, as as we consider this idea of running, it is so easy for us to get into our heads that it is my strength that is dependent on me, that the next path has to be cleared by me, and and that there's this divide between me and God, and I've got to somehow overcome all of that. It's so tempting because we want to be able to resurrect an idol to worship. We want to resurrect something to say, wow, look at me, I've done such a great job. But we're not the forerunners. Jesus is the forerunner. He already ran and broke down the barrier, so I don't know what barrier we're trying to knock down. He already made the pathway through. My greatest and highest calling is to have faith that he's done so and to run after him, to follow him, to run, to, to, to hit strides that he's called me to hit to run in the direction he's called me to run, to run in the way he's called me to run. That's my greatest and highest calling. That involves my mental life, my my thoughts. It involves my emotions. It involves my mouth and what I say. It involves my actions, my inactions. It involves even the material things around me and the immaterial things around me that I would run in a way that shows I'm running on the path that has already been cleared for me to run. That I would do so believing the path has been cleared because there is a great high priest whose name is Jesus who finished clearing the pathway. He broke down the barrier between you and us. So, Father, let us live by faith and run the race. Father, for your glory, for the good of your people, in Jesus' name.